It's time for Talking Pictures Trivia. A quick friendly reminder, LED light bulbs don't actually dim, they pulse. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom. Pat. And Mahoney. Thanks for joining us today, Pat and Mahoney. Pat and Tom were in shows together in college, but since then, Patrick has joined us for Broken Blossoms, Bride of Frankenstein, Michael Hahn, The Third Man, The Gold Rush, and The Fast and the Furious. Mahoney and I went to college together, but since then, Mahoney has joined us for Back to the Future 3, Super Troopers, and The Gold Rush. Pat and Mahoney still conveniently like movies. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz, as these pivotal questions will determine who earns today's trivia crown. In the first round, each question will be worth one point, and in the second round, each question will be worth two points. Then, once the fierce competition is over, we follow it up with our famous movie rant, Where Anything Goes. Tom, tell us about today's movie. Today, we are going back to 1919. Edsel Ford succeeds his father, Henry Ford, as president of the Ford Motor Company. World War I ends, the prohibition in the USA starts, and United Artists is founded by Charlie Chaplin, Douglas Fairbanks, Mary Pickford, and D.W. Griffith. During all of this, Ernst Lubitsch's movie, Madame Dubarry, was released. Other big movies in 1919 include The Homesteader, Broken Blossoms, and Charlie Chaplin's Sunnyside. So, Madame Dubry. So this film is about Madame Dubry, the notorious official mistress of King Louis XV. It's about her rise as a poor woman working in a milliner's shop, about her ascension to her role as mistress to King Louis XV, and then her fall and her beheading due to the French Revolution. Nick, if you had one word to describe Madame du Barry, what would it be? Aristocracy. Pat? Epic. Mahoney? Irony. And my word would be passion. It's time for question one. What one occurrence starts Jen on this upward path through society? Locked in. Locked in. Oh, double locked. That was a quick one. Oh, yeah. I think uh, Pat beat you, though, to be fair. Nick. Maybe. Mm -hmm. I'll lock in last. Okay, which means you have to go first. What do you have? Uh, I was going to say the, the delivery of the hat. Okay. Uh, Nick, what do you have? Yes, I think it's really the unsuccessful delivery of the hat. The hat got beaten up by a horse and walked all over it. Yeah, it did not look successful. I will, I will agree with that. And Pat, what do you have? Yeah, I would say the, the Spanish ambassador's horse stepping on the hat box. That's what I would say. And that is a point for everyone. All right, indeed. She was on her way with this hat and the Spanish ambassador, Don Diego, his horse stepped on it. Um, <laughs> so I want to ask, what did you guys think of um, the, our main character, Jeanne, uh, Jeanne de Coup, I think her name is, um, and she, you know, her, her ascent upward, because it seems to me from, from watching the movie, 
so much of it is like accidentally falling forward. <laughs> like so much of her rise is this kind of accident after accident after accident. And at a certain point, she sort of establishes agency. I wanted to ask what you guys thought of that kind of, that kind of structure, that kind of rise. One of the things that I noticed was it happened very quickly. Like mm. it wasn't this slow burn. I mean, just like you said, one happenstance created another, which put her in a position to continue to get the eye of more powerful in this society men. And yeah, it seemed almost effortless on her part. Yeah, a lot of it's accidental. It's just like right time, right place. And also by their standards being super hot. That's, yeah. That was another thing. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I mean, like, I, I think you're right that there is certainly, there is a level of accident of accidentalness to it, but I don't think that it's totally, I don't think it's totally accidental at all though, because so the reason, the only reason I say that is because she knows exactly what she's doing for a lot of it because it's, and they established that I think very early because when she's going to deliver the hat, I think she like sort of drops it and then she has the other guy pick up the hat and carry it for her to her you know to is it Armand to Ar mm -hmm. Armand's house and so she knows exactly what she's doing she, I think you're right she's a woman who takes advantage of the opportunities that are offered to her but in my opinion the is it, the opportunities were going to come it was just a, it was just a numbers game for her like she was always playing a game with men around her and it just happened that eventually the right one hit that got her on her sequence through the whole process so i think that that while it is accidental to to a fundamental degree she seems to have been relatively in control of the process and of all the people around her as she went up I think anyway. So I, I know you called her relatively hot for the times, but to me, she kind of had like a Wednesday Adams vibe is kind of what I took away. Um, but as, as far as her, it, it was essentially a meteoric rise, almost as if you sort of rubbed a genie's lamp and, and were one day working in a hat factory. And then two weeks later, you're the, the King's mistress. So I, I, I she was, she was rubbing something. <laughs> well, not, not on screen anyway, but um, so I, I, I think I agree with Pat's point in that at no point was she really out of control of the situation or didn't know what she was doing. Um, but to a certain degree, you know, there were a bunch of women in, in that hat factory at the beginning of the movie, and she's the only one that ends up, well, obviously not successfully in the end, but ends up, you know, as essentially royalty at some point in the film. So while I do agree that there is a certain amount of, she kind of takes agency as she climbs this ladder. Um, there's certainly a, 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 an epic amount of luck in order for you know, certain events to kind of come together for her to get there. I take both these points. I think it's, it's a, both of them are meeting, right? It's this kind of her passion, right? Her, her kind of ability with men, which is always on. She always has that kind of ability on. And she knows like, to your point, Pat, what she's doing with it. She really knows how to manipulate and use the situation, um, mostly. Uh, but there is this kind of um, kind of stumbling forward as well. There is this this accidental quality to it, and so th there's this. There seems to be this tension in this movie between the the history as propelled by like people with these desires, a kind of individual actions, that kind of idea of history, and also this 
like tide of things that are happening, right? They're just all of this action that's happening. And the movie seems to be kind of like dancing back and forth. And I think, you know, going to both your points, I think that's going on with, um, with, with the main character, that she is sort of being kind of taken on the tide a little bit, um, a, a lot of it at the, at the end of the picture. Um, but there is this kind of interesting notion of this incredibly important event in Western history being somewhat predicated upon people's passions or, or individuals' actions based upon these kind of psychologically identifiable um, frames, of, frames of mind. She also played almost like the bad girl too. So like even with the king, the proper thing would be to kiss him on the hand and she sneaks a, a kiss on the cheek and that, ex, you mm -hmm. know, accelerates quickly. But, and there was another person that was of high stature that she made him kiss her hand. So like she knew what she was doing and the king thought that was hilarious. So she, she knew how to play to her audience based on even where she came from. Yeah, she, she has, she does have control over the rooms she's in for the most part. It's time for question two. When Don Diego invites our heroine to his quarters, what does she count to decide whether to honor her date with Armand or to move on to Don Diego? Locked in. I just want to say I'm two for two in predicting the question so far. Wow. <laughs> I think that should be, I think that should A be bonus part point. of the challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it'll be embarrassing if you get it wrong though. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to lock yeah. in, but I'm, I'm, this is not, this is a guess. Yeah. Again, I'll lock in, but. All right. So Mahoney, you locked in last, so you go first. Oh, good. I did not guess this to be one of the questions. Uh, so I'll throw a dart at the wall and guess coins. Okay. Uh, Nick, you locked in second. I remember there's a lot of people having tea and such. So I'm going to say she counted sugar cubes. Okay, very good. Thank you, Nick. And Pat, what do you have? So honestly, I'm not exactly sure what exactly they were, but they were either the, the ribbons or the buttons on her bodice. Um, on her dress so she was counting them like you know you would do um, you know the like like doing a flower like she loves me she loves me not mm -hmm. so she was going down her bodice and counting the, the ribbons and buttons on her on her dress or her bodice okay very good and the points go to pat or the point goes to pat very good all right so i brought this question up to introduce our uh our other hero um armand and I want to think, what do people think of his trajectory? Because he has a trajectory that sort of is the mirror of Dubarry. I, I thought he was a, it's a fascinating character given, you know, I think he goes through a lot more sort of arc and ups and downs than even Madame Dubarry goes through. And it's almost, it's very surprising for a film of this time. Like, I, I guess I, I, I feel like you don't often see a lot of characters from that time go through so many roller coaster up and down kind of motions. It was, it was quite surprising to me, the level of, of intricacies of that character. I thought he was far more sort of developed and intricate than Madame Dubarry, in my opinion. I, I thought that character was sort of, it's one of the most interesting characters that I've seen in a film from that era, I think, anyway. Yeah, I, I agree. He goes, you know, he has a lot of these kind of back and forths. Uh, I, I also 
like that somehow he's in charge of the French Revolutionary Court um, and his decisions are based upon, you know, like his his kind of past romances versus the mob. Um, but yeah, he he is, uh, he's also, I think, her equal in the sense, I think I agree with you, Pat, he's, he has greater ups and downs. He's a much more um, probably distinct arc of development than she does. Oh, they do share a sort of, equal level of passion when you know that was the the american title of this film was passion and it was released in in december of 1920 um and i think that's what why they're sort of linked together you see in some places it's like in certain comedies it's like the people who can spar together or the people who are attractive enough can kind of get together and in this film in this kind of melodrama it's like the people with the most kind of sexual emotional passion are the people that belong together and we know that because they're you know <laughs> both strung that way so I, I i didn't think necessarily that he or she had more ups and downs but i i liked uh, i guess tom's comment that it was kind of mirror image like they sort of started at the same point in society you know at the the very beginning when she starts to deliver the hat box and they they meet each other and they're at that point they're sort of both kind of like I'll call them bottom of the, not quite bottom of the rung because then she starts to ascend all the way up to King's courtesan and he ends up practically dead. And then they sort of meet back in the middle when she, you know, gets him promoted um, in the army and he essentially ends up, uh, what's it, second lieutenant, I think, um, in, the, in the military and then ends up, you know, running the French Revolution at, at the same time that she's kind of coming back down um, after the illness and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know necessarily that there were more ups and downs. I just think as she was, you know, doing her, you know, genie in the lamp, meteoric rise, it was essentially kind of at his detriment. And then when she started to bring him up, it was the same time that she started to fall. So it was essentially as she's pulling him up, she's sort of dragging herself down. And then it, it's kind of like watching wavelengths on a, a whatever you watch wavelengths on. I don't know. Um, where kind of, you know, as one wavelength machine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, EKG, one, one, one of them are sciencey things um, <laughs> where like one wavelength goes up and, you know, you see the other one go down and then they cross each other in the middle. So it, it sort of felt like that, that every time one of them was going to go up, the other one was going to go down and vice versa. And it's interesting when she first establishes agency, it's kind of, and they're like, you are the most powerful woman in France. It's kind of like, she immediately goes to him and, and promotes him or she brings him into the chambers of the mistress, right? Blindfolded. A lot of her, you know, agency when, when she realizes her place, when she's not so much playing the scene or playing the people in the scene, but sort of doing something for herself, it, an attempt to kind of help him um, to, you know, promote him or prevent him from being executed for, you know, uh, murdering the Spanish ambassador, which, you know, you, you gotta stick with that execution. <laughs> some, some rando murders an ambassador to, you know, like a hostile power, you gotta stick with the execution. But anyway, you know, so it, it seems like that regardless of what she needed to do or wanted to do in the moment, the kind of the the Lodi star for her was him and that she was, when, when she could be herself, when she could do something that she wanted to do for herself outside of this kind of court culture type life that she had amassed for herself, it was to aid him, to bring him to her in certain ways. 
All right, here we are at the end of round one. And Pat is in the lead with two points and Nick and Mahoney are tied for second and last with one point. Uh, we're going into our break. We'll see you on the other side. So the product is uh, Dr. Fuchs's Lactating Dolls from Second Species Corporation. This is Dr. Johann Joseph Fuchs's Life-Size Lactating Dolls, the mommy that can shoot milk into your mouth from over 20 yards away. Life-Size Lactating Dolls are lifelike in every way possible, five feet six inches tall, with skin warm to the touch and hauntingly real eyes. But not only do you get all that, Dr. Fuchs's dolls have enormous realistic-looking milk-filled breasts that can actually nurse a disgruntled baby. Let's say your damn baby is crying, your wife is out of town, and you're six or seven beers deep and don't feel like getting up. Just turn on Dr. Fuchs's lactating doll and enjoy that eighth bud heavy as your maternal investment shoots up to three gallons of hot milk across the room and directly into your baby's screaming face. And now, with the voice command app, you don't even need to get up and turn on the doll. So if you need milk for your coffee or morning cereal, just yell, milk, and a stream of milk will shoot out of your lactating doll's enormous breasts and into your cup or bowl. Yum. Thanks, Dr. Fuchs. That's Dr. Fuchs's life-size lactating dolls, the mommy that can shoot milk directly into your mouth. From Second Species Corporation. And we're back. We're at the pivotal point of our episode where we ask the guests, in this case plural, a key question. If Pat and Mahoney, both of you, separately, could watch Madame Dubarry with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be? I would watch this with Robespierre. <laughs> <laughs> and why? <laughs> because that would be awesome. <laughs> that would be fun. I'm sorry, but watching this with Robespierre would be hilarious. Um, he would deserve it so hard. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I would watch it with Robespierre yeah. and just and just hear the vitriol come forth. Oh, it'd be fantastic. That is that is my answer. So it 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 doesn't really necessarily fit with the movie, but it was all I could think of when I watched it. So I would watch it with Mel Brooks only because of history of the world. Part one, <laughs> it's good to be the king mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> is all that I could think of. And I know it's not, I think it's Louis 16, not 15 in the movie, but um, so I, I would choose Mel Brooks just for that specific reason. I love my people. Paul. <laughs> oh, piss boy. <laughs> yeah. Is it History of the World that has the, is, is that the one that has um, uh, the Madame Defarge with the knitting needles, but there's no, she has no yarn. Is that History of the World part one? No, I know what you're talking about. Um, no, I don't think it's that. No, I don't oh, think it's either. Is, I no, I, I, yeah, I can't remember what movie. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, there's no, she's just like banging them together. She's just banging the knitting <laughs> needles together. <laughs> that was awesome. I mm. thought I thought a lot of um, Tale of Two Cities with this one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, never mind. I thought that was. I could. I haven't seen History of the World Part One part in years. What I, what I will say is, it's good to be the king. Yeah, I I did to both those. Like, I was reading criticism from like the '30s about like critics writing about this movie, and like how the um, 
like the allies, the or the, there weren't the allies anymore, but like the French and the British really did not like Ernst Lubitsch. They referred to this movie as his revenge or like Germany's revenge on them for, <laughs> for winning the war. Because um, he made also, right after this, he made Anne Boleyn, which is, this is like the same thing. It's like the, the evil English victimized Anne Boleyn. And then he made Danton after that, which is like the evil French <laughs> killed Danton. And so after a while, people were like, He's just giving us the finger for winning the war, isn't he? <laughs> there's, there's a theme here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that's, it, it's, yeah, it's kind of interesting. The, the, like the worries about like anti-French or um, anti-ally forces in this, apparently it was like really hard to get this to go to America because nobody wanted to watch a movie made by a German in 1919. Um, and they kind of, went with the story of like it's a movie that's Polish and it was filmed in Germany and this idea of like it wasn't a German movie even though it was made by a German studio by German people and a German producer um, with German actors no 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 it was just filmed in Germany and that's apparently what got it able to be released in New York I guess I'm interested in that question though like is it actually anti would you consider it anti-British anti-French uh, they give a pretty good justification for why they execute her. Yeah, I like. I guess I guess I saw it as a little more subtle than that. I but. I don't see it as anti-British at all. I also don't see like his other movies as anti-French or, or. So this is more just this is this is just like okay. Okay. it was just kind of like the um, it was just sort of kind of like an interesting political battle, you know, for for production rights and like would anybody see this? Yeah. That makes sense. No more. I was like, well, the, the fact that I'm like, well, you know, but it is interesting, actually. He clearly had a theme there, um, but it's interesting to see what his. Uh, yeah, it's interesting anyway. Yeah, I, I think a lot of it for him was like he liked costume dramas and mostly Lubitsch did comedies. That was his thing. He didn't like to do movies like this, even though this was up to this point his biggest seller. This is what got him a contract in, in Hollywood. Um, you know, this is what got him. This, this movie, I think, outsold for a little while. Uh, um, what's the D.B.W. Griffith movie about the clan? Um, uh, Birth of a Nation. Birth of a Nation, yeah. This movie, like, competed hard with Birth of a Nation. Which, that was, that was going to be one of my comments at some point. It's like, this 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 is like the European Birth of a Nation. It is. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a little, it's got, yeah. a, it's got a little less sort of camera finesse. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, it's a very, it's got a, it's got a, got an edge on that it's got it's got a it's it's competing with it i can totally see it 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 is and it's interesting it was lubich kind of claimed to learn a lot from griffith and he was referred to as like the german dw griffith yeah he totally steals a lot Mm. of stuff i mean a lot of those shots are very dw griffith some in some shots i think he actually you know like I think he actually surpasses Griffith. Mm-hmm. Other ones, he 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 sort of misses the mark, and I don't think he quite knows what he's quite how to do what what Griffith did. Mm-hmm. Some of those shots, especially at the end, the last 10, 12 minutes of the film are like that's a, you know when I said epic, like those are epic, epic shots. Like I don't, I wonder if those are, it's got to be close to the record for that time period for number of people in a shot. The number of people in some of mm-hmm. those scenes is incredible. It's it's fascinating what he crammed in there yeah. towards the end of that movie. Yeah, I was gonna bring that up in movie rent, but you beat me to it. Just the fact I don't think same thing. I was I was era. gonna bring it up then, but yeah, then like came the, up now. It's it's fascinating. 
It's time for question three. What inspires Louis XV to make Jeanne his official mistress? Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. Okay. Um, Honey, I think you were last, so you got to go first. Yeah, and now all of a sudden I'm drawing a blank. Why don't we give guest privilege and throw it over to Nick? Nick, what do you got? Sure. He was upset that there was a crowd outside the palace saying mean things about her. Okay. Um, go back to Mahoney. Any idea? No, I can, I can picture sort of the scene, but I totally lost my thought. So I will say she looked like Wednesday Adams and he had an Adams family fetish. Okay. Okay. That, that is uh, more of a, a subtle reading. Um, but uh, Pat, what do you got? Uh, it's because she comes back with like the scandalous song. So she's heard the scandalous song about her and the king in the town. And she bought a copy of the song and she goes back and she gives him and he reads the scandalous song. And he says, I will make you my official mistress so that no one can make fun of you any anymore. Okay, very good. And Pat has got it. Exactly. That was the scandalous song that was planted um, by the uh, sister of the minister Choiselle, um, who was the woman who he was trying to get her to be Louis' mistress. And that's when he randomly saw uh, Dubry in, uh, in the gardens and was like, oh no, I, I like you better. You're much better looking. To defend myself a little bit, wasn't that the same scene where she arranged for that mob to be mocking her? Does she arrange it? Does anybody remember? I, Does she? No, the mob. The mob doesn't show up to the wedding. The mob yeah. shows up at the wedding. I, well, well, there is the whole. There is the mob standing there while he's like passing passing out the song and singing and all that kind of yeah. stuff. I don't know there, if that's what Nick was talking about, but there was a mob of people. But he's. But the king doesn't see that. The king doesn't see the mob. The king only sees the song that she brings back. But she does he hear the, it the, in she, this <laughs> island film? <laughs> Pretty loud mob. But the mob, the mob scene is is at the court presentation. Is mm. when when the mob's out. I thought it was the same time she handed him the thing. But anyway, it, it, no. no well, there, there's two separate mob scenes. There's the mob scene where she buys the song from the guy who's singing it, mm. and then brings it back to the king. And then there's the mob scene at the palace or whatever you want to call it, where they're standing at the gates, and then everybody comes out with their guns and etc. So it's it's he plants or she rather uh, plants the the poem or song in the newspaper. There's the one guy who's selling it. She buys it, Dubery is the she, buys it, brings it back to Louis. Louis decides, I'm going to make you my official mistress as, as a response. In the court day, the, her coming out day, which is after the wedding, right? There's a wedding so that she is allowed to be at court. Then there's court day and at the court coming out, um, you know, her, her quintillion or whatever, uh, that's when you have the, the the shooting because kind of louis comes out and goes they won't oppose me i'm their you know god on earth or, or whatever um in conclusion i think that gets the points yeah yeah that's fine that's fine there was a lot of yeah. mobs but what, what was interesting when you just said about the wedding it's a wedding to another aristocrat so she can then be the a mistress mm. of the king so it's kind of an interesting dynamic i liked i liked that guy i liked the guy <laughs> at the bar <laughs> yeah they drag him out of the bar and give him you know we'll give you a hundred thousand whatever it is and he's like all right for that i'll marry what's it the devil's grandmother yeah that's what he says <laughs> i'm gonna follow his story it was it was dubry's brother right 
Yeah, Wil- Wilhelm Dubery. Wilhelm Dubery. Uh, he's a lucky man. See, why wasn't that the question? I remembered that. <laughs> what a so, you know, so, so I, I was, I mean, I guess I wasn't fundamentally confused, but I thought, because I, I, I thought that, that Dubery and the, the, the other guy's sister or whatever, I thought, I thought they looked somewhat similar. So when I first, when I was first kind of looking at it, I thought Dubery wrote the song and had it published herself. And I was like, <laughs> Ooh, what kind of double game is this? <laughs> it's like, ooh, she's publishing a scandalous song about herself mm-hmm. in order to get like in order to I was like, oh no, wait, 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 no, it's not, it's not that. She's not that clever. Mm. Pat, it's all the powdered wigs, okay? It's no, it was really the lead paint. That's what yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what drove them the, crazy. The, I mean, it is true though. The wigs, the wigs did confuse me a little bit. The, the costumes are very good, but I was a bit. Sometimes I was like, "Wait, which dude is that? Which one is I, that?" Yeah, like, I had to watch it. I've seen the movie before, and I had to watch it twice just because I, I had the same thing with some of the ministers and like, um, like I actually got uh, Choiselle and Dubery mixed up a few times. Yeah. Um, I probably but, still have them mixed up, you know, just yeah. the, all the aristocrats that are not the king kind of do mm-hmm. resemble each other. And I think that's also on purpose is that there was a certain look and certain appearance that they were supposed to all mimic. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole thing was kind of like a, it was a bunch of white people on a moving, like essentially like the film looked like a moving newspaper is kind of what the aesthetic sort of was. So it, it was occasionally tough to figure out all right who said this and who thought that and who's actually am i watching in the scene and what dialogue is ascribed to is that the minister or is that dubery or is that who you know the king but yeah yeah it's interesting i think some of the confusion some of it's accidental i think some of these people are also famous so we're maybe not the best audience for it but i think especially when you got to the mob scenes when you had like the dialogue coming out and occasionally there was dialogue from a person and occasionally it's just like, let's all go to the Bastille. And it's just like words in the air. Um, There is like points where it just seems like words are coming out of the mob. Um, And I I really like that effect. I really liked how he used the mob. I I thought the the last 12, 15 minutes of the film I thought were the best. Mm. I, I thought they did a really good job setting up the that that piece of the film, and and I thought that was actually was extremely well done and extremely. I mean, again, I, I you know, the, the point about D.W. Griffith, like I feel like some of those shots is incredible what what they kind of managed to get into single shots mm-hmm. with static cameras. It's it's quite impressive. Yeah, yeah. The, the storming of the Bastille is great. The and like you were saying, the um the the guillotine scene at the end is. Yeah, is is really impressive um and it, it's sort of i also like how it's balanced against that one crowd scene with the aristocrats in the it's like a ballroom it looks like an empty opera house but nobody's yeah they called it they called it the opera opera and op- i think the german literally because i looked at the german it's like opera ball i was like oh that's a, that's a very a, oh, direct that's a language german one yeah, it's like, yeah. opera ball <laughs> Ah, very, yeah, yeah. Which, but it didn't seem to have. It seems to be more more ball than opera. But um, yeah, th- that scene I think was like the balance against what you got in those last those last twelve minutes, especially that that last that guillotine scene, because I thought that was also a spectacular a spectacular scene. And it's it's interesting how he uses kind of the the mob there, because um, I think like one kind of difference with him and D.W. Griffith 
is that, and this is not just me, other people you know, said this, is that like, he seems, especially in this movie, Lubitsch seems less interested in like having individuals make up a mob or make up a large group. They just all seem to be one block. And then like, he's able to zoom in or, or um, use some sort of technique to identify our, our character of interest. But the whole group like works together as, as one thing. Um, in that ballroom scene, the opera ball scene, uh, the, it was like the, uh, that kind of pan up when Dubery sees uh, at this point, uh, uh, Jen, um, and it sort of, he sees her feet you see like what he's into is your kind of feet and it, and it zooms up to her face. Um, I thought that was, that was a really interesting camera technique to identify someone within a group while still leaving the group as this kind of like unidentified mass that represents this, this custom or this way of being. And it's also interesting, like in, in the end, the, the one kind of characteristic of the mob at the end. And also my other favorite mob scene is um, that one scene where they're like walking with a little cart or whatever it is. And they have like the- oh, and they and they, they attack the yeah, cart. Yeah, and like the guy comes out of the window. That was oh my great. gosh, yeah. that was brutal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that was a great scene. That was, yeah. I'm hoping nobody was actually in that for the sake of the, the shot. I mean, they tear the thing yeah. apart. It was great. It was like, it was like hyenas on a lion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was great. Yeah, I, I love the guy climbing out the window. Like that <laughs> second story window. I love that detail. Um, but it's also like, as it goes on, the mobs get have fewer and fewer clothes <laughs> that's another thing so like the end like the the like the executioner the one thing he's like the one character in the mob that I can recognize because he just has he's like he doesn't have a shirt on you know and, and when he's pulling her out of the jail so you know executor and whatnot um and it's just like as it goes on it starts in this one group scene where everybody's like beautifully dressed and and going to this weird opera which isn't an opera and it ends with like people are in rags, ripping people apart. It's, it's a really kind of, it's a really cool way to use groups. It's time for question four. Who releases Armand after he is arrested for trying to steal bread? Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. Okay, uh, Mahoney, you locked in last, you gotta go first. I'm gonna go with Minister uh, Charlemagne or however you pronounce his name. Okay. Uh, Nick, did you lock in second? Or did you lock in first? I'm sorry. I did. Okay, go for it. Uh, Mr. Dubery. Okay. And Pat, what do you have? Yeah, it's like Minister, yeah, Troy, uh, Charlemagne. Troy, <laughs> Troy. <laughs> it's French. Um, Choisel. Troy, Troy. Well, yeah, I was gonna say Choisel, Choisel, <laughs> yeah. Mister Choisel. Oh, um, yeah, because yeah, he he says something like, "Yeah, he's like, because uh, because uh, Armand says I would get my revenge if I was free," and he says, "Then you are free." Mm -hmm. Like that was a baller line. <laughs> yes. it, it, it was it was as baller as you can get with a subtitle. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, as baller as you can get with a subtitle. That'll be the title of this dropped. episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and um, Pat. And Mahoney both get that answer correct. And since Pat has more points coming into it, Pat is the winner. Congratulations. There's a shocker. Good Yay. job, Pat. You got us. Mm -hmm. You got us. Congratulations. It's time for Movie Rent. 
I brought this movie forward. I'm really fascinated, uh, not only in this movie, but also the context in which this movie is made. Like the, the kind of, um, the rise of kind of German cinema between the wars, I think is, is really interesting. Um, and the critical literature around it is, is somewhat interesting. There's this like wackadoodle book and I, I wanna share it with you guys. It's called From Caligari to Hitler, where basically this author, I think his name is Siegfried Krauser. Um, and if I, I think I have a PDF, I'll send it to you. It's, it's, it's insane. Send, send. Yeah, where it's basically, he's arguing like, you know, um, basically movies like this, Madame Dubarry and the cabinet of Dr. Caligare are responsible for the rise of Hitler. Okay. Because, you know, they like embody totalitarianness and like um, Ernst Lubitsch doesn't take the revolution seriously. He reduces all of it to human like agency and he reduces it all of it to emotion, but not the emotion of the masses. It's personal emotion, not the emotion of the masses. Therefore, it's anti-democratic, therefore Hitler. So, <laughs> so it's, it's an amazing read if you, <laughs> if you could get through some of it. Um, but yeah, but anyway, so like that kind of, that kind of like critical language and also the fact that like these movies, kind of costume dramas were coming out. There was a ton of movie being thrown at them um, because UFA was the, the film studio, which was government funded. Um, its original, um, its original founder, original operator was um, uh, the the head of the German army <laughs> in World War One, um, uh, Lubendor, um, and you know th that kind of stuff. I, I think is interesting, and also the connection between this and Hollywood. This is what got Lubitsch noticed. Uh, Paolo Nigri, the woman who plays the title character, um, she was the first European to get a Hollywood contract, um, and it, you know. Wasn't, wasn't the most storied Hollywood career. Um, she ends up dying, I think in Texas at like age 90, <laughs> um, but. Uh, well, doesn't, what's his name? The dude who plays Louis the 15th is the first uh, Academy Award winner ever. Yeah, Emil Jennings, yeah, it was the first Oscar yeah. winner, yeah. So all of- He actually does have a link to Hitler, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't yeah, I don't remember if this author blames Emil Jennings on Hitler um, or King Louis the Fifteenth, uh, but yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, and so those are all kind of the features of it. And I also really like this kind of idea of um, the the sort of personal emotion of these characters and their their personal desires being the thing that like thrusts history forward. <laughs> like history happens because like certain people were horny at the right time. Um, you know, that, that kind of somewhat telling of it, I, also, I found interesting. I was wondering if other people liked this movie, didn't like this movie, found it a historical curiosity, all of the above. Well, this goes to one of the comments you said, probably not one of the more serious ones. But I thought um, the king actually had some serious creep vibe going on. Like the way he would look at her was very unsettling. <laughs> I mean, saying like a piece of meat is not is an understatement. It's just mm. he looked, yeah. <laughs> and I, I think the the creepiest person slash scene in the movie was way in the beginning when. Uh, what is it Armand I think it is like she's like sitting on that little sofa thing and then he sort of like pokes at her foot 
I was like, this is a weird dude with some serious fetish. Um, but I, I, to Tom's question, I guess, I actually, I, I don't watch admittedly a whole lot of silent, like French German movies. I'm sure, I'm sure that's a surprise to all of you <laughs> about me, having, me having met me. Um, but I did, I thought it was, you know, pretty well put together. And it was kind of interesting that the entire movie was essentially driven by like, these men's you know prurient interest in this woman who just happened to be delivering a hat one day so it, it was kind of interesting how something so simplistic as the you know the desire to have sex with a woman who delivers a hat kind of essentially kind of raised everything and and gave her essentially ascended her towards you know such a, a high position as being you know the king's mistress while at the same time impacted so severely Armand's life you know getting him out of prison essentially and saving his life so it was very interesting in terms of how, how such a basic concept can have such a major impact on on people's lives and history in turn something very specific about this movie that jumped out at me we started talking about the amount of people that were in this um, shots earlier but also the length of this film i don't know if i've seen or at least on this show i've seen anything that even was close to half the length. I think most of the silent films we saw were much shorter. I think an hour was probably a long one if we even saw any of that. So that was one of the things I was shocked about how long it was and, and that it did actually keep my interest throughout the whole story. So that was something, I, I don't know, I just had never experienced through the silent film media before. Yeah, that was a D.W. Griffith thing also was kind of maintaining that length. Because I think Broken Blossoms came out this year and I think that's, we did that on this show um, with Pat. Uh, and I, that that was like an hour and a half, an hour 40, something like that. I would have an hour 20 or no, something. something like a little longer. Yeah, but, something around there. Maybe it was an hour and a half. Well, yeah, but this was like over, this was an hour and 50, right? Yeah, this is about an hour 50. Yeah. yeah. But then what's it called? Um, Birth of a Nation is like three hours. Yeah, this one was over. <laughs> Uh, an hour and 50 minutes. And I forgot that Broken Blossoms was even that length, which I did enjoy that film as well. Plus a pretty large cast. So I had never seen anything like that within this type of silent film genre. Yeah, this is this is when it starts to happen though. This is when you see like, they're, you know, they kind of realize that people, they being like the producers and whatnot, realize people will go to like a two or three hour movie and they're like, great. We'll make it three hours we're gonna have crowds and we're gonna spend tons of money on crowds and people on horses are gonna ride back and forth and it'll be wonderful um so yeah you start to see that like a lot around this point uh and you know it's like it's hollywood and it's ufa who are the two big i love saying ufa it's, um who are the two big you know film studios who are who are kind of capable of doing that i i have a question i mean yeah. and i actually don't know this what year did nosferatu come out 22 i think okay so this is pre nosferatu mm -hmm. it, it's interesting because this is very and have you guys done nosferatu on we show? haven't no you haven't? we okay. did caligari um, okay um because nosferatu is i mean this has certain german expressionist kind of you know like shots like a lot of it isn't and this is why 
if if I if I'd been able to choose more than one word, I would have been like, it's it's like D.W. Griffith meets a Nosferatu mm-hmm. because it has these these very expressionistic elements. Like one of my favorites is very early on in the movie when I and I think it's in the same scene that you were talking about, Nick, which is like when he like pokes his head out from underneath the chair. And I mean, that that is creepy. Like that's got a Nosferatu feel to it. And um, that was actually, that was going to be another one of my questions was I was hoping you were going to ask Tom was, was name all the places that she hides throughout the film. <laughs> um, but the, um, but like, there's another shot where I think, I can't remember what it is. She drops on the ground if it's like an apple or something like that. And there's a, there's like a perfect shot of like a shadow reaching over and like grabbing something under a chair. Like it's got these really cool German expressionist shots that were just like you wouldn't have got that in america i don't think you would have got that in american film and i loved those sort of like really really close intimate shots and then you end up with like the dw griffith shots of like horses riding across you know these kind of things you know and i loved the i'd never seen a film like that like i've never nosferatu is very chamber-esque like it's very sort of contained and everything's sort of in its place and there's very close-ups in the shadows and all this kind of stuff and dw griffith does have you know, sort of the epic feel and this kind of stuff. I'd never seen the two combined, mm-hmm. which I really enjoyed about the film. Yeah, no, that's, I think that's a good point. I, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't call anything an expressionistic necessarily, but the fact that- I think there are some, I think some shots are expressionistic. Mm-hmm. I just think there are some of the use of shadow, maybe not expressionist, but there some of the use of shadows mm-hmm. and just weird, angles of shots i think some of it and that's why i just it, it sort of maybe it prefigures expressionism there's there's a hint of i mm. think i still think there's a hint of german expressionism yeah, here. maybe it's like watered down right because this is kind of yeah german expressionistic era is what like 19 1904 to early 20s it's sort of dying by the end of the 20s right german expressionism I think expressionism in general is dying by the end. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I get the feeling like with that maybe it's the, maybe it's kind of like a water, like he's taking the fact that you could do cool camera angles and being like, okay, let's do it in a kind of non-expressionistic way or let's use that to like zoom in on, on the lover or something like that. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a good point because it does have this kind of, it's able to use those kind of shots to combine these kind of, smaller moments with these kind of grand historical things and yeah you don't really get that in in Griffith. Griffith is much more like lyrical even Broken Blossoms was much more you know it's it's much more like um it's much smoother and this is much more geometric I think in its in its use of of camera. I also do like the the, there's like a something of an equivalence between this and uh, the kind of depression era movies and they you know because this was made like at germany's worst time germany wasn't doing great germany in was not, yeah. <laughs> basically 1919 to 1924 was like it was like the worst economic period in probably german history um and like and the 30s weren't good the early 30s weren't good. yeah <laughs> yeah i don't but but until i get Mm-hmm. I guess until Dawes, until you get to Dawes. Yeah, Dawes, Dawes is 24, yeah. yeah. Because it's like you couldn't, like you had to spend your money, you got paid in increments through the day because you had to spend your money at like lunch. Otherwise it would be basically valueless by dinner. Um, 
but you know, regardless, there is this kind of like the, these, there becomes this, this collection of these German costume dramas that actually become really popular in America. There's this like a like German wave thing going on in the early 20s from people like Lubitsch and, and others. Um, and, you know, Max Reinhardt, the theater director who Lubitsch trained under, also becomes kind of popular and known overseas. Um, but there's this interesting thing, because in America, we do it, we did it too during the Depression, where it's like, times are really bad. Let's make a bunch of costume dramas, or let's make a bunch of like rich people dramas. And I, I also like the idea of like, oh, they did the same thing we did, like, or we would do like 30 years, 10 years later, 13 years later or so. You know, we just like churn out these high comedies in, in the 30s. And here it's kind of like the birth of German cinema is happening as Germany falls apart. Um, you know, it's a kind of an interesting parallel. I think it may even be a distraction from the times. Because you yeah. said these theaters, or sorry, these companies were sponsored by the government, right? So one way to put them at ease is to give them a distraction. Well, the, the problem, as they saw, there was a bunch of... So, oh, okay, and I don't, <laughs> I, I don't want to take over a movie rant. A bunch of movie theaters, um, like uh, Sweden had like the biggest movie studio, um, which we saw a movie from there uh, on this podcast. Um, and then what ended up happening was the German army was basically like, we're not creating good propaganda. We need to make, you know, the best propaganda there is. We need a movie studio. And Lubendor, the general, kind of signed off on this and he took over and they just bought up a bunch of movie studios, including um, Paul Davidson's movie studio, who's the, the producer of this and a, a big innovator in, in German movies. And they made UFA. And it lasted longer than the, the German resistance by far. Um, it lasted until the 1960s. And so they just had all of these resources centralized and a ton of money just thrown at it. And they're like, well, we're not here to make war propaganda because the war just stopped just as we started doing this. And so they just had all of these resources in one place to make the only industry that you know was like really successful for the first uh, four four and a half years of the the nineteen twenties. But this is yeah, this is a time period I like because you get this and you also get I think the year before this was Caligari, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And then a few years later, like you were saying, Pat, it's in 1922, it's Nosferatu. And it's all like, it's this weird kind of artistic scene where you're getting like um, these costume dramas, which are also coming from the stage. Ernst Lubitsch was a student of, does anybody know who Reinhardt was, Max Reinhardt? He was like a, 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 a theater director, a really prominent theater director in the, in the 19 teens. Um, and uh, he, Lubitsch was an actor in his company. And Lubitsch did a lot of Shakespeare. Reinhardt did a lot of like realistic Shakespeare and stuff like that. Um, Lubitsch, the only thing I know Lubitsch, Lubitsch did Shop Around the Corner, yeah, right? Yeah, that was his, probably his most famous movie. Like it's the only thing I know about Lubitsch. Yeah, and, and so Lubitsch trained him. So you have this kind of like uh, really interesting kind of realistic something like that, realistic acting thing going on. And at the same time, you had this like bizarro expressionistic stuff going on and they're both feeding uh, the movies in different ways. Um, and so it's, it's a really fun time period to watch movies from. It's also like reading stories about them sitting in the theater and hearing the guns of World War I firing. And then like Paolo Nigri was sitting next to me and she's like, are they, 
are they shooting outside? And he's like, Shh, people are watching the movie, you know, <laughs> just be quiet. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, that, that's part of the reason why I picked this is I just fascination with the, the context around it as much as with the movie. Nosferatu okay. next. No, we should do Nosferatu. That would be fun. Don't do Nosferatu next. I wouldn't be surprised if we get to it. As yeah, a- we should just that do- movies. That movie's awesome. We should do another podcast just on early 1920s German movies. Can, can you handle the audience? Everyone like, will. Uh, everyone. Will. <laughs> <laughs> Every, lines around the corner. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Um, There's just too much interest. Uh, yes. Horses. Too much interest. Groupies. Think of the groupies. Famous, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to once again congratulate our winner of the week, which is Pat. Even when we tried to make it anyone's game, he still took it down. Sorry, Mahoney. Good fight at the end. At least I got a second question right. <laughs> <laughs> Check out our website, talkingpicturestrivia.com, for more information about us and our episodes. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts as well as our YouTube channel. We are extremely grateful for any positive reviews as those help others like you find us. If you like what you hear, remember to like and subscribe to our show. Did you fall in love with Madame Dubery and why? Let's continue the conversation on Twitter at Talking Studios. Have additional thoughts? Email us at talkingpicturestrivia at gmail.com or give us a call at 201-467-8679 for a chance to be featured on one of our future From the Listeners episodes. Thanks again, Pat and Mahoney, for joining us today. Where can people find you? Nowhere. (laughs) That's a fair response. Pat does not want to be found. (laughs) I don't don't have an online presence. Uh, Generally about Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Okay, fair enough. Queens. You can find me in Queens. You can find me on Twitter at ThomasLayman15. Please tune into our sister podcast, uh, Talking Pictures Trivia B-Side, where we go into the movies in more depth. I can also be found on Twitter at The Nickname. Join us next time when we discuss Tom's recommendation from 2016, Passengers. Stay tuned for our first impressions of Passengers. Ding, 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 ding. This is not my first watch of this film. I did see this with my wife and we were debating if we saw it in the theaters or when it came out um, at home. And I'm pretty positive just by the type of movie this is, it would have piqued my curiosity, but probably not drew me into the movie theater. So I'm pretty sure we saw this at home. And I will say I was happy to watch this again because when I first saw it, it wasn't exactly what I thought it was going to be. And we'll definitely go into that more, but this is really more of a relationship film that happens to take place on a spaceship traveling a hundred years. So I wanted to see it again to see if I missed anything or, you know, really how I I felt about it. Cause I, I knew I enjoyed it to some degree, but it wasn't necessarily one that I was highly recommending, nor was I telling people, you know, you shouldn't see it. So I, I was excited to, to see it again. Yeah, I, I don't think I saw this in the theaters either. I think I saw it at home, but I've seen it at home a number of times such that I'm not sure how many times it is. Could be maybe five or so. It's wow. it's right up it's right up my alley in um uh sleek, kind of sexy space, uh, you know, cool technology, 
um, and relationships. Jennifer Lawrence is great. Chris Pratt's great. Um, it's kind of a popcorny sci-fi movie, but uh, but I still I still like it. Yeah, I saw this movie this week for the the trivia contest. I haven't I haven't seen it. Before. Oh, first time. Oh. It, it's my first time seeing it. Yeah, I. What, I watched it on the computer. We, we have an unusual situation where KJ picked the movie, uh, but he couldn't be here, so I'm doing the questions for the movie. Um, and so I'm, gener- I, I'm watching the movie with the idea of of generating questions and being like an authority on this movie that I haven't, like, you know, like no experience with. I have no experience with the director. Um, uh, I actually don't know even Jennifer Lawrence's body of work that well. Um, Hunger Games. <laughs> yeah, which I haven't seen. I I can't figure out what the plot of the Hunger Games is, other than arrows save the day. But so my my first experience with the movie was kind of um, I wouldn't say pressured because I, I was perfectly happy to watch it and generate questions. I like doing that work, but it was it was conditioned upon a particular utility, and so it's interesting watching a movie with that kind of frame of reference because you're not yeah. You're not looking to see what happens next. You're looking towards um, what is useful in this. What's important that I that I can that I can reform to make into a good question and make into a good conversation. Um, and so this, I think, it's the first time I've had that experience where I'm watching a movie going like, "Oh, okay, this is the first time I'm experiencing this, and it needs to be useful." You know, that type of thing. Yeah, we'll see. Well, Andy, if you've seen the movie five times, um, you might be the authority yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah you yeah, have yeah. to. And I watched it last night. Uh, yeah, to to, yeah. to study up. So we'll see. We'll yeah, see yeah. so you can you can <laughs> check me. Yeah. What... I, I don't know, and, and this is up to you. I don't know if you want to re-record it, but you said the seamstress of yes, the king, yeah. not it's, the mistress. I, I, I said, holy. I mean, maybe she was like sewing them up. There, but, uh, mm. Like, I don't. So, someone check that man's herbal tea. What are you? <laughs> so I don't right. mean, one I more time. Sorry, I I don't want to. I don't want to. I heard it too. I, yeah, I okay. wasn't sure what to do. I enjoyed Seamstress of the King. <laughs> <laughs> she gets promoted to Seamstress of the King. You are the most powerful woman in the kingdom. You are the Seamstress of the King. Of the king. <laughs> She's okay, not a seamstress at all. She's like a milliner, right? <laughs> I don't know. You told me her back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm.